This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show. Love, death, and especially family and developing healthy relationships from the start. That's why we have a regular segment with a marriage coach and not a divorce lawyer. And today we're talking to a medical doctor in North Carolina who sees a big part of her job as coaching parents and children about, well, all kinds of things that aren't necessarily related to being a medical doctor. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, known to her patients as Dr. Rose, has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16 years. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all that. Dr. Rose, if you don't mind us calling you that, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, I'm so happy to be here, but I, I really enjoy being called Dr. Rose, especially my patients. Fantastic. And one day I'll have to come myself. I'm a parent. I think I'm doing a pretty good job. But you know what? I think we all wonder what we could be doing better. And uh, I think I need some coaching and maybe my kid. I think we could all use a coach. Tell us about Dr. Rose. You know, let's pick up where we last spoke. And we're going to be running a, a long series here so the folks listening can maybe hear whatever problems they're having with their, their children or with parenting uh, sort of characterized in our discussion. So let's talk about some of the kids you've seen recently. And let's not use specific names. I want to respect the privacy of the children. But let's talk about the archetypes and the types of behavior uh, as, as, as a way to lead into this conversation. Let's give us one instance of one child, their problem, and what you did to resolve it. Okay. The first one I thought about when, when uh, we started thinking about uh, prototypes was this little boy, and I, I sort of like to um, kindly and uh, with affection label them. But he was, he's the developing genius. And this guy was in first grade when he started coming to me, uh, and he was failing first grade uh, probably within the first three or four months, and mom had completely lost control of this young man. Mom couldn't figure out why this was happening. The older uh, teenage sister uh, was relatively easy uh, to to guide in school, uh, but this young man, uh, even though he was six, was a complete handful, and they were looking to expel him in school and said that he is un- uh, he was unteachable, uh, and therefore he could not learn and could not learn how to read. And, it's, and mom uh, went so far as to tape him with her, uh, with her phone uh, to show me what he was doing at home. Uh, he was having absolutely breakdown, terrible temper tantrums whenever he would not get his way. And he would have a sort of form of this in school, but he would know that he had to have limits in school, so he wouldn't go too much over the lines, just so, so, sort of push the limit. And so I would ask mom, so does he seem very smart for specific things? And she said, well, yeah, like, you know, to program the, the cell phone uh, or the computer for, to pick up words that he hadn't seen before, uh, either uh, in vocabulary or by sight. He seemed very sharp, but he wasn't able to control his behavior, so he was behaving 
uh, more and more poorly, which was leading for him to do very poorly in school. Uh, Then uh, I told mom a few things to do, and they were kind of simple. They would restrict the the TV, uh, send him to early bedtimes, uh, make this room very simple so there weren't any distractions. And they're not necessarily punishments, but they're consequences and and things to take away uh, what would get in the way of her voice and his and and his attention. Mom looked at me like I uh, was a criminal, maybe federal criminal. And she said, this is a very unusual way to treat your children. She went back home, and she came back the next time and said, everybody agrees that this is like kid torture. I mean, like not giving them, allowing them him to watch TV. What kind, of, what kind of discipline is that? And I said, just bear with me. What will you lose? Will you not be able to conjure up something magical from the TV? Just bear with me. Be very patient uh, with what I'm, I'm uh, guiding you with. Because this behavior, and this is important, this behavior did not appear overnight. This behavior will not go away overnight. It will take much persistence from you. So we continued to work on mom and not necessarily on him. And he would sit there very quietly, and I'd always be observing uh, this young genius. And he would always be watching me, listening sitting quietly, I never saw any of those behaviors Mm. in my practice. I was like, you know, I would think for all the world, unless I know know you, that you might be fibbing to me, and you're telling me something about some other child, or that you're trying to uh, uh, sort of overstate what's going on in school at home. But I did see that videotape, and so I trust you, but... Don't you think it's peculiar that he is able to behave for 30, 45 minutes at a time and just listen to what you and I are saying? This is fascinating, and we're going to go into a break here and continue on the other side, Dr. Rose. And for anybody who's had that kind of kid, and I think we've all known it, and by the way, if any of us know that kind of parent or are that kind of parent who has a real hard time disciplining our kids, uh, we're talking to Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein and she has a lot of experience, as though a medical doctor, with coaching parents how to handle certain types of kids and their behavioral problems. And it's not often a medical problem, and prescription drugs are not the answer to so many of these problems. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And the story of raising our kids, well, it's a story we, we tell often here. And more with Dr. Rose. After these messages, I want to find out what happened to this boy. And we'll talk about one other archetypal or prototypical child behavior that Dr. Rose coaches a parent on after these messages. American stories and we continue with Dr. Rose 
and this this gripping account of this child who and I got to tell you Dr. Rose what fascinated me is that you sort of understood or the kid understood that there were certain boundaries like he knew he could go much further at home than he could at school and he knew deep down inside he couldn't get anywhere with you <laughs> and so the kid knew boundaries. And by the way, I, I've discovered, and by the way, there are some kids, I think we have to admit, that sometimes they're, it's very hard for, any, for them to understand any boundaries. But I think those are the real outliers. My dad was a superintendent of school and became almost a master psychologist over the 40 years he was in education. And he said there are very few of those kids who don't respond to some proper guidance, discipline, and boundary. But there are some. Um, there, there are some real difficult, difficult cases. Uh, but let's talk about this one and what happened next. Uh, it's almost like a suspense thriller. What what happened to this kid and to this poor mom? Well, it seemed like for about a year and a half to two years, so this kid is in first grade at that point, uh, for about a year and a half to two years, we sort of bounced along. One One appointment he was doing well, the next appointment he was doing poorly. And then I said, so what, what is it? What's, what's going on? And uh, I realized that things were going out at home that were making mom very anxious, very stressed out, and losing her authority in her home. She's a single mom, and during one of these times, her dad, uh, who was an alcoholic, came back into their home and started living back in their home. And at the beginning, he was was, uh, doing things very responsibly, but after a little while... He started to behave in a way that was disrespectful of that home. And so mom uh, started to be very anxious, very stressed out. And here I have the boy once again acting out at school, but acting worse at home. And and a lot of this, in, in other words, has to do with the child's reaction to the parental situation. And mom, once she let the alcoholic husband into the house, had lost her grip on the things that were actually working, and that was the reason for the setbacks with the, with the boy. Yes, and the other part was mom's authority and her self-confidence as a mom floundered every time. So she second-guessed herself, would uh, get into a conversation instead of a directiveness with her son, and this uh, developing genius, would take advantage of the fact that mom was no longer as sure of herself and not as authoritative. And so there, the conflict would start again. I am the boss. No, I am the boss. Mm -hmm. I am the boss. No, I am the boss. And when you start going back and forth with who's the boss, you're not the boss. Yep. That's right. (laughs) And so this happened a couple of times, and I brought it up to mom, and I said, do you realize that every time that you tell me he's doing well, he's doing poorly, that there's something going on in your home. And she looked at me and she said, my life has been like that. I go from, and we said this together, one chaos to another. That's right. When we ourselves go from one chaos to another, our boat will push down into the deep waters, that little dinghy that is behind us, which is our kid. And that was what was happening with a developing genius. He, indeed, was a very smart boy. And we'll get to that part at the end. But every time that mom's life circumstances would, would go down deep and almost sink her, she herself would sink so much that her children would come down with her. So we started to talk about the other children. 
and realized that even though her perception at the beginning was that this developing genius was the only problem in the house, now the other two children were also misbehaved doing poorly at school. And in fact, she said, well, I need to bring you the other children because... Uh, because he, the one I was, I was talking about, is not doing quite as poorly as the other two are. And so I realized, ah, this is a family thing. All three little boats are going down with the bigger boat. And so I, that's when I started really coaching mom. And I said, mom, this is about you. We need to help and restore you and give you the power to be mom through all of this. And Dr. Rose, what does that what does that look like? Because now you're 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 a doctor, and you've now clearly gained the trust with this lady. And I, I would assume that without the trust, you can't have this conversation. And you've also gotten a confessional out of her in the sense that you know not many parents want to say I'm the problem. I mean, it's so easy to blame the kids, blame the school, blame the teacher, blame the alcoholic husband, but getting them to see that they're the problem—that's no duck walk, is it? No. Uh, and I, I don't identify them as the problem. I, uh, I will guide the parent to see how strongly attached that child is to you. And I have them understand whenever your child is acting up, before you go and fix the problem, look at you. What's going on? Are you anxious? Are you stressed out? Are you letting the rest of the world affect your voice to your child, Mm -hmm. then step back, look in the mirror, and see a mom, a mom who truly is the parent for this child. And that's what she did at that moment. She took a step back, and she said, oh, my goodness, it's me, isn't it? And I said, yeah, these are the things I want you to do. And this is what I told the mom. I said, okay, I need you to go home and look in the mirror and see how do I look like an authoritative mom a little bit more. How do I have to place my shoulders? How do I have to look up my children in the eye? Do some role-playing with yourself before you come out and build yourself into that mom. Maybe you've seen it on TV. Maybe you had a grandmother that way. But build yourself into that look before you come out. And, and at the end of, you know, maybe two weeks, three weeks, whatever it takes, you will actually start to be that mom. And I, I also explained to her, do you think that an actor and an actress that convinces us that they are that person, um, that they're Robin Hood, uh, that they're, they're Mother Teresa. Is actually Mother Teresa or is actually Robin Hood? No, they have to practice it also. But this is your most important role. You have to practice that. And she did that and came back the next time and the next time, and every time was a little bit better. Well, here's the, the part that almost made me cry was that at the end of last year, she comes in, and this is the end of third year, and she said, Dr. Rose, they have identified my boy as being intellectually gifted. And I said, I knew it. <laughs> and so they're, they're going to uh, put him in these special classes that will have him possibly skip a grade. He is that smart. I said, that is amazing. So we went from first grade failing, not being unteachable, and we turned not him but you around, and he is one of the most intelligent boys in that whole third grade class and probably off the charts on how intelligent he is because the, the, all the tests showed that.
Well, and it's it's funny when you first described him in the earlier segment, you called him a genius boy, and you were almost intimating you were watching the wheels turning in his head as he was quiet in the office, and you thought, "Oh my goodness, this kid's got tremendous potential." And and ultimately, mom saw that not only she was the problem, but she was the solution, and that had to make her just feel great that she was actually getting the most out of her child because she was actually learning how to properly properly be a mom. I loved that line. Mom, you're not the problem. You are the solution. Because if you turn it around, otherwise you're just going to be hard on yourself and yep. you're going to say, see, I am the problem. No, you might be the problem. You might have been the problem yesterday. But from here on out, Mom, you are the solution. You are the medication. You are the therapy your child needs. And when moms understand that, they can turn their problem child at school into a thriving genius. And, you know, I wonder, Dr. Rose, and we don't have much time left, and I'll maybe ask a rhetorical question, but as you help this lady become a better mom, you may actually just have her become a better woman. Um, And maybe she gets to handle that alcoholic husband in a different way, too, Uh, because when she can stall off that chaos to protect her children, indeed what she's doing is protecting herself. That is exactly right. I have seen a woman who, before she was difficult to employ, she now holds a steady job. Uh, her alcoholic uh, husband uh, has been averted a couple of times. <laughs> she uh, seems more sure of herself. She's able to speak better. She, she uh, dresses better. She comes into the office and she commands her sort of gentle, womanly respect. And uh, I'm so happy to see her every time. We just, we, we just get a warm uh, feeling from just looking at each other and saying hello. Well, we love these stories. Dr. Rose, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, a doctor who actually coaches parents how to be better parents. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the things that matter in life, government, art, history, and of course, philosophy. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and catch their great online courses, the Constitution 101 is about as good as it gets. I went to a great American law school and learned more in that class than I did in three years at the University of Virginia about my own country's founding documents. And then there's a course on C.S. Lewis. And it doesn't get better, folks. It does not get better. And that's about 10 hours. So if you don't think there's any material for you to sit around a computer with and watch with your kids, think again. Uh, That's hillsdale.edu. And I know that the folks at Hillsdale care a lot about sports, because they care a lot about character development. And the classical education wasn't just about shaping the mind, but the body. 
And that's why we love to talk about sports, not because we're sports crazed, but because the important sports plays in the development of the American character. We learned that when Teddy Roosevelt was talking about football and what he thought football meant and how it shaped men and men's lives. And so we're digging into the life today of Sandy Koufax. And on this day in history, a left-handed pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers set a new National League record for most strikeouts in a single game. And get this, it was 18. What's even more amazing is what happened when this picture wasn't even at his peak. It would be a few years later that the same man would have had what are arguably the greatest six years of any pitcher in baseball history. And again, as I mentioned before, we're talking about Sandy Koufax. He was born in Brooklyn in 1935, and young Sandy never got to know his biological father, but had an extremely strong relationship with his stepfather, Irving Koufax. Taking after his very shy mother, young Sandy was usually very reserved, but he let loose when playing almost any sport. Sandy never intended to become a baseball player, much less a professional and let alone a Hall of Famer. Here he is with some of his early teammates, coaches, and biographers, describing how he stumbled into this sport. I wound up in baseball almost by accident. Uh, there was a man by the name of Milton Barry who had a sandlot team in Brooklyn, and I guess during infield he decided I should pitch. My father said, he's going to be a pitcher. I'm going to make him a pitcher. So we have to get him to play with us on our sandlot team. Despite his obvious pitching talent, Koufax gained local fame as a 6-2 forward at Lafayette High School. Ranking second in his division of the public school league in scoring, he earned a college basketball scholarship. For some reason, he fell in love with the idea of Cincinnati University, and just by the accident that the freshman basketball coach was also the varsity baseball coach. I first met Sandy Koufax at the University of Cincinnati. Talking to him, he told me after seeing his play in Madison Square Garden, that was a school that he wanted to attend and play some basketball. And really only went out for the baseball team because he heard that the team was going to be going to New Orleans. I'd never been to New Orleans, so I decided I'd probably be a pretty good baseball player, maybe. He said, hey, coach, I'm a pitcher. And he said, coach, I sure, yeah. Uh, and he said, no, no, I, I pitch in the sandlot. Uh, you know, I was pretty good. I said, kid, the season's over with, I'll take a look at you. And I did take a look at him. And what I saw was unbelievable. And, you know, what's interesting here is, I mean, imagine what we just heard. Sandy Koufax gets into baseball for one reason. He wants to go to New Orleans. And I don't, I don't recall the name of the Medal of Honor winner, but David Leonard was interviewing him and saying, say, how did you get into the Army? And he said, well, I was working at Subway at night, and I heard about a free T-shirt if I went to sign up for the Army. I had no intention of signing up. I just love the idea of a free T-shirt. And this led to that. He said, I like the pitch. I went back home. I joined the Army. And, of course, Medal of Honor winner. So sometimes the most remarkable things that happen in people's life stories, they aren't exactly planned. Let's go back to the story, though. Koufax had blazing speed as a pitcher, but very little control. Seeing potential in the southpaw, the Brooklyn Dodgers signed the young pitcher, but didn't give him much to do or much opportunity to learn. Here's Sandy with a reporter, and then the legendary Duke Snyder, a Dodger teammate, remembering Sandy's very rough start. My first two years, I just sat in the big leagues and really did very little except watch. And all of a sudden, you realize, you know, you're not trained for your job, and it took a while. I had not pitched. I'd pitched four or five Sandlot games and four games in college. That's it. 
But my first recollection of Sandy Koufax is in Vero Beach, his first spring, and it was like 10 o'clock in the morning, and Sandy's first pitch went sailing over the backstop, landed on the roof of the press room, clunk, and it woke up a 65-year-old sports writer who was in there taking a morning nap. <laughs> when he first came up, he couldn't throw a baseball inside the batting cage. Now, that's pretty wild. That is pretty wild. Seeing how poorly Sandy was doing, he began to lose motivation as the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to L.A. Here's Sandy Koufax, Dodgers general manager, Buzzy Buvesi, some sports writers, and Dodger catcher Norm Sherry, remembering that fork in the road. And by the way, we've all been there in that fork in the road. And this is Sandy Koufax's. It was frustrating. In fact, uh, I asked out at one time. You know, I had an argument with Buzzy in the Coliseum. When we moved to Los Angeles, I said, you know, I want to get out of here. He came to me in the tunnel of the Coliseum and said that he was retiring, he was going home. And I said, well, when are you leaving? He said, tomorrow. I said, we'll be in my office tomorrow morning. I'll have the ticket for you. Tracy told me that in the back of his own mind, he was thinking, I'm throwing down the gauntlet to Koufax. It, you know, it's up to him now to pick it up. Later, he came to me and he said, uh, I've got to go back to spring training next year and give it a real shot, real shot. And if I still feel the same way, I'm going to quit. He gets to spring training in 61, and he's scheduled to pitch in a split squad game against the Twins in Orlando. First pitch, I think I called for a curveball, and it was a ball, and I called for a changeup, it was a ball, and, and then I called for a fastball, and it was a ball, and we had the bases loaded. Now he had thrown any strikes, and I said, Sandy, what you really need to do now is take something off the ball. I said, lay it in there and, and let them hit the ball, and we'd get some outs. I went back behind the plate, and uh, he just wound up and just said, here, hit the ball. Well, nobody hit the ball. He struck out the side. And uh, it worked out. You know, I pitched the eight innings. I pitched a no-hitter for the eight innings. And I think it was the, the start of my attitude changing. Well, Norm Sherry taught him to relax his grip a little bit, relax his body, and he got complete control of his body to where he was a fantastic pitcher. Best I've seen. And by the way, we learned about that relaxation from Al Pacino. I remember in our hour we did on him, he talked about how he would repeat the fervent prayer of Michelangelo's when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, and that was, Lord, free me from myself so I can serve you. And that was the way that Al Pacino would relax. And in the end, that's what Sandy Koufax needed to do. He had all this talent, but he just couldn't relax on the mound. So now he's able to control his raw power. Sandy Koufax then hits his stride. Let's listen again to sports writers and Sandy's fellow players, many of them Hall of Famers themselves, and players with 20-plus seasons under their belts. And the awe is still evident. I don't think anybody's ever had six years like Sandy Koufax had from 1961 to 1966. He won three Cy Young Awards when there was only one Cy Young Award given for both leagues. Pitchers sort of have the unofficial triple crown of wins, strikeouts, and earned run average. Now, Koufax won that triple crown three times in a four-year period. Sandy reading signs into his windup, 2-2 two, two pitch, fastball, got him swinging. Catching him was like, well, we're going to kick somebody's ass tonight. His mechanics were so pure, he looked like he wasn't even throwing hard. He was still, like throwing 98 miles an hour, you know. Sandy's hands, if you look at it, could almost go right around the equator of a baseball and touch. At the very end of Koufax's delivery, his left shoulder 
would rock back. It was like the recoil of a rifle. He threw so hard that the muscles were adjusting and pushing his shoulder back. And I've never seen that in any other pitcher. He was snake-like. He was elegant and powerful. It was just awesome to see the twist in that arm, the tremendous power. Every ounce of strength that he had went into that pitch. Koufax came straight over the top, which gave his ball extra spin and rotation would give it that little flare at the end where the ball would rise six to eight inches as it uh, crossed home plate. He had more than heat. He had that massive curveball. I mean, we call it a yellow hammer. Drops off the table. And when we come back, more on the life of Sandy Koufax. He struck out 18 batters on this day in history. Our American Stories. Today we're covering the life of Sandy Koufax because on this day in history, he struck out 18 batters in 1959. But it wasn't just one event. This guy dominated on the mound like few. And you're going to hear the rest of this story because it just keeps getting better. And by the way, in that clip were voices like Tim McCarver and so many other pros, Steve Carlton, Tommy John, and... Listen to the awe. And by the way, during the break, we had Hengler just going crazy about how his dad tried to teach him the almost ballet-like beauty of Sandy Koufax's delivery and the raw power that came out of that beautiful delivery. Sort of like watching Tiger when his stroke was at its best. It was a beautiful thing to see, but don't get confused. That beauty uh, unleashed raw power, and it just intimidated anyone who competed against Tiger. And the same with Koufax. When he was on that mound, the, the batters were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. And he did not smile a lot. And neither did Tiger. He wanted to kill these people. He was very competitive. And so let's pick up where we left off. Hall of Famer and two-time National League home run leader Willie Stargell. He remembers playing against Koufax. I just called Koufax a comfortable over for four. <laughs> Somebody asked me one time, what was it like hitting off a Koufax? I say, you ever drink coffee with a fork? <laughs> you ever drink coffee with a fork? <laughs> and this is one of the great hitters of all time. And he said, I just called it a comfortable 0 for 4. Wow. Wow. And by the way, imagine having that in your mind going up to the plate. What an advantage for a pitcher to have the batter know he's not going to hit you. It's wonderful. Hall of Famer and four-time National League home run leader Willie Mays felt almost as helpless Against Sandy Koufax. I couldn't hit him. Sandy would strike me out two or three times a game, and I knew every pitch he going to throw, fastball, breaking ball, or whatever. I knew it. And actually, he let you look at it, and you still couldn't hit it. <laughs> oh, and you, Look, again, Willie Mays, uh, this is the Barry Bonds of his day, uh, hands down. He could do everything. And, again, the resignation and almost the humor. But many remember Koufax for more than his maddening skills. They remember him for his character. Here's Newsday sports columnist Stan Isaacs and Jewish leaders on the time Sandy Koufax made history by not pitching. Some historian wrote a book. The name of the book was The Hundred Most Influential Jews of All Time. And it had Einstein at the top and Jesus Christ and Moses. And there was one athlete, only one athlete on the list. And the athlete was Sandy Koufax. 
Nothing contributed more to Koufax's place in social history than his following the footsteps of Hank Greenberg, who in 1934 chose not to play on Yom Kippur. The difference was that Koufax elected not to start game one of the 1965 World Series. The Day of Atonement is the most sacred day of the Jewish year. It's a 24-hour fast from sunset to sunset and the Jew stays in the temple the entire day. He wanted baseball to respect uh, a, a Jewish holiday as much as baseball uh, would respect the, you know, Christian holidays. He believed in what he was doing. A lot of people say, I believe in this, but when it comes to paying the price, we'll not pay the price. To celebrate his own Judaism. Here I am, a proud Jew who's not even going to play a baseball game because of a Jewish holiday. Wow, the Jews were applauding in the streets. I was still in high school in 65. Jewish kid from New York. I mean, we didn't have many Jewish sports idols. <laughs> and here was Sandy making the statement of thinking, how cool is this? There was no hard decision for me. It was just a uh, thing of respect. I wasn't trying to make a statement, uh, and I had no idea that it would impact that many people. And that's what it was all about for Koufax. No grand gestures. He just wanted baseball to respect his religion. And even if some were upset by Koufax's decision to not pitch Game 1 of the 1965 World Series, even more were inspired by his actions throughout that series. Here's Bob Costas. Every single Jewish kid I grew up with in New York revered Sandy Koufax and thought that it was something very important, very significant, that he didn't pitch on a high holiday. But then that he came back on two days rest eventually to pitch game seven. Uh, there wasn't a Jewish kid that I knew who didn't get a lift out of what that represented. It's hard to describe just how dominant Koufax was. After seeing Koufax's performance in Game 1 of the 1963 World Series against the Yankees, Yogi Berra said of the South Ball, quote, I can see how he won 25 games. What I don't understand is how he lost five. On September 9, 1965, Koufax pitched a perfect game, not allowing a single opposing player to reach first base. He was the first left-hander since 1880 and the sixth pitcher of the modern era to do so. So imagine the shock when, in 1966, Sandy Koufax called some reporters together and said this. I don't have much to say. I just have one short statement, and I'll try and answer any questions that anybody has. Uh, a few minutes ago, I sent a letter to Buzzy asking him to put me on the voluntary retirement list. And not a big deal, not a farewell tour. By the way, that's why so many people love what Timmy Duncan recently did at the San Antonio Spurs. He just said, I'm done. Goodbye. And that was it. Championships, championships, but it wasn't about him and Koufax class from beginning to end. So Sandy Koufax announces his retirement. It's headline news across the country. He wasn't just an L.A. or Brooklyn hero. He had fans all over the country. Here's Marvin Miller former head of Major League Baseball Players Association, some teammates, and, yes, some sports writers, explaining why Sandy had to stop playing. I went into the clubhouse, and Koufax was sitting 
with his left arm in a tub of ice water. I never saw an arm swollen that badly. He saw the alarm on my face. He said, don't worry, it always does this in a pitch, you know. That's the first time I ever heard of being ice being a miracle drug. Not only did he play in pain, but he, he rested in pain. There were times when Sandy couldn't comb his hair. There were times he had to shave his face with his right hand rather than his left hand because his left elbow hurt him so much. He couldn't, couldn't raise his hand to his face. It got to the point where he said, I'm not going to be a cripple the rest of my life. And uh, he just gave it up. This was a guy who threw every pitch as hard as he could. Every pitch was a fastball or a sharp breaking curveball. He wound up really giving his arm for the Dodgers. The extent of the pain that he took uh, and endured was just incredible. Um, you had the ice, you had the heat treatments. Um, he was taking these orange pills, anti-inflammatory pills that made him sick to his stomach. I never missed a start. You know, and started a lot of games with two days rest and, you know, couldn't believe it. But the medical staff, the trainers, the doctor, they got me through it. You can't imagine that today, two days rest. And these guys would pitch complete games. you got to remember that, too, and that doesn't happen anymore. Here are some sports writers reflecting on the historic nature of Koufax's retirement and what it reveals about him as a man. No one else in baseball history has ever won 20 games in his last season and then retired. Koufax won 27. No one in the century retired after striking out 200 batters in his last season. Koufax retired after striking out 317. When he quit, his record was still sensational his last season, but the pain was equally sensational. I was getting uh, his cortisone shots with uh, pretty good regularity, and I just feel like I, I don't want to take a chance on completely disabling myself. It insulted him to think that pitch playing baseball was going to leave him with a hand or arm that couldn't do the things that normal people could do. That's the thought of somebody who does not see themselves essentially as an athlete, but as themselves. What is your thought about the loss of income? Well, the loss of income, right, let's put it this way. If there were a man who did not have use of one of his arms, and you told him it would cost a lot of money and he could buy back that use, he'd give him every dime he had, I believe. Sandy Koufax has led a relatively private life in the decades after his retirement with only occasional public appearances. But in case anyone's wondering, he didn't lose his touch, even in retirement. Here's the Washington Post's Thomas Boswell and the Dodgers' Steve Garvey remembering a very special batting practice. Before the World Series in the late 70s, after he'd been retired for more than 10 years, I believe he was 42, pitched batting practice to the heart of the Dodger lineup, uh, to Ron Say and Steve Garvey and Dusty Baker. And he was just throwing fastballs to them, and they couldn't even get the ball out of the cage. And the first two guys, he broke like four bats. And I didn't see any aluminum around, so I said, you know what, I'll hit in the cages later, I'll just watch you. A coach, another Dodger coach, ran out to talk to Koufax, who was a, a pitching coach then, and, and he whispered in Koufax's ear, and Koufax suddenly ran off the mound, and the other pitcher came out to finish the batting practice. And the obvious reason was, an hour before a World Series game, Sandy Koufax, retired for 12 years, is putting the heart of the Dodger batting order into a slump. And one of my dear friends, Dennis Prager, used to tell us, and Hengler reminded me of this, that he always had Christian envy when he was a kid growing up in the streets of Brooklyn because all these Christian kids that all these athletes look up, to, look up to. And when Sandy Koufax made his mark, this gave him tremendous joy 
and tremendous pride as a young Jewish boy. And what a man, what great character, what an athletic talent. And we celebrate the life of Sandy Koufax today. On this day in history, he struck out 18 in 1959. As always, our This Days in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. continuing our series on the Great Depression and the New Deal with author and professor Amity Schlaes. She chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation and has written four New York Times bestsellers, including a great history of the Great Depression, The Forgotten Man. She is also the presidential scholar at the King's College in New York City. And Amity, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You bet. The last time we talked, Amity, we talked about how America and Americans were generally doing quite well in the 1920s, due in no small part to the very principled and restrained style of then-President Calvin Coolidge. Talk about that. Well, there are different styles of the presidency, and sometimes first do no harm is a good rule for a president. Coolidge was a refrainer. Sometimes I call him the great refrainer because he said if you see ten troubles rolling down the road at you, Nine will fall into the gutter before they get to you. Interesting, right? Yep. And if if you are a super action man, he just didn't see the president as an action figure. Uh, you may you may cause more trouble than necessary. Uh, you may take unnecessary action. You may hurt the people. You may hurt, hurt the country. So there he was. He said, "I think all things being equal, the American economy will grow if I get out of the way. If I restrain the government and." Some of the most beautiful texts in the English language are his 50 vetoes of various laws. Some of them were pocket vetoes, so they were silent. But some were well-worded. We were just looking today at his veto of agricultural subsidy. He said, well, I like the idea. You know, where where Coolidge was from, the farms didn't do very well, but uh, future generations are not going to be able to handle this funding, and this sets a precedent of supporting an industry that will expand to other industries. All these things were were discussions for him. So probably I'm going to veto this. I am going to veto it. Okay, I vetoed it. I'm going to veto it more than once. Agricultural subsidy, even if the farmers get mad, because it's the right thing to do. The, The federal government shouldn't get in that business. So what an interesting executive um, that that he would be ruled by restraint, in that he resembles somewhat George Washington. Yeah, no doubt. And by the way, I think a lot of actual CEOs are ruled by restraint because you can't go down every rabbit hole and you can't solve every problem. And I think great CEOs are tremendously focused and put their resources and capital in the best possible use, uh, period. So in this respect, he may be very much like what some of our great CEOs, how they do and how they think and how they act, Amity. 
Yes, it was before the business school model existed, before business school existed, really. They, they, Coolidge didn't talk about business. He talked about commerce. Right. Commerce. That right. was the word. <laughs> you know, not inflation, credit. Not business, commerce. They, they had their beautiful vocab. But, but he understood that. And as an attorney, he was an attorney. He read the law and sat the bar in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He was not particularly much a litigator. Coolidge was a compromiser, an, an arbiter, a moderator, um, more solicitor than barrister. Right. Interesting. So, so he would find the compromise, even if it wasn't perfect, and he did that in part to save fees for his clients. Mm-hmm. No, well, litigation, ex- litigation is out, expensive. Right? Litigation is expensive, Amity. It, time, it chews up time, resources. It's risky. And what, what CEO, what businessman wants to be in litigation? That's right, and they're pragmatic. So, so Silent Cal, we 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 hear about Coolidge. Silent Cal, the joke, right? He was always silent because he was a farmer or child of farmers or something. You know what? We all wish a silent lawyer because oh. lawyers are paid by the talking hour. You bet, you bet, Amity. We've talked about the overall greatness of the 1920s, but what were some of the rough spots around the late 19th, early 20th centuries? What made certain Americans or subsets of Americans? dissatisfied, even disillusioned with our system as it stood? Let's start with farmers. We were basically a farming country with no competition. We were moving away from that. Farm prices went up and down, commodity prices on a roller coaster. Farmers were the were forced by the nature of their business to be speculators, to try and guess what happens in the fall without the benefit of options, without any financial instrument, without even accurate records, just yep. the almanac, to to guess. You think of um, a good way to think about this um, for for many of us is to think about Little House in the Prairie. Little House in the Prairie, you know, they have, well, the locusts come at the end of the year. Or there's a freeze, right? And the whole crop is lost. And that's the refrain, and the whole crop is lost. And many of us have that in our background, too. And the whole crop was lost that year, despite the virtue of the farmer. So that was a hard one. And prices went down after they'd gone way up um, after World War I. And farmers weren't expecting that. There were some distortions in the economy. There were, were shifts in demand. Europe needed food. We supplied it. Then Europe didn't need food anymore. So that, that was important. And, and the farmers were in a depression 10 years before the Great Depression. So the farming depression was a two-decade depression, whereas the rest of our Great Depression was a one-decade depression. And so what was the government thinking? Were they thinking, let's respond to this constituency with with lots of help to help ease the unpredictability of the cycles and weather cycles they face? Oh, absolutely. The the farming subsidy legislation was known as McNary-Hoggan after two lawmakers, and it, it was passed several times. That's what Coolidge vetoed, and he didn't veto it because he was a jerk. He vetoed such legislation because he thought it wasn't the answer. Another factor, of course, was the tractor productivity gains. Well, you didn't need so many farmers to farm, did you, with the tractor and with electricity, which was coming on the farms. And he said, well, the natural progress of the farm is that the second son is going to go to the city and sell automobiles. The 20s were the decade of record automobile sales. People got radios and cars. So maybe that's natural. Then there'll be one fewer 
man to feed, one fewer family, because there'll be one son instead of two. Well, all of a sudden, the farm prices don't look so bad when there are fewer people, right? That's so on that true. Farm. So he said, this is economic displacement. I didn't invent it. It can be painful, but it's a, a reality of life. Let's respect it and not distort it. Yeah, and allow people to go to that next thing so they can get on to the next uh, economic activity that can provide for their families. We're talking to Amity Schles, and we're talking about the 1920s. When we come back, the American responses to some of the perceived shortcomings of capitalism and a free enterprise system. And then we'll get into Herbert Hoover's life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The History of the Great Depression series continues. and this is Our American Stories. We're continuing our series on the Great Depression with author Amity Schles, and she chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She's written four New York Times bestsellers, including one of my favorite books, a book if you haven't read, you should. In fact, you must, and it's called The Forgotten Man. And we were talking a bit about uh, Calvin Coolidge, and then we were getting into some of the shortcomings as it was seen by some sectors of the American economy, particularly farmers in capitalism and the free enterprise system, and we bring back Amity. Amity, what, what comes next? We get, we get Teddy Roosevelt, we get Emma Goldman and the anarchists. Uh, talk about the response to these so-called problems or these perceived problems, because the hardest thing for people to do, and we'll get into a quote about this in a bit, is to just do nothing and let the markets fix things. Well, Theodore Roosevelt perceived problems, and the country perceived problems. Remember, revolutions were taking place in Europe um, or about to take place. Um, You remember there was unrest in Russia around 1905. And, well, what if that happens here? What do we do with this new industrial worker with whom we're not very well acquainted? Who is that person who works in Lawrence or Lowell, Mass., at a mill, at a factory, um, the men who work on the trolley or the train, are, are they going to ha- launch a general strike uh, the way they would begin to in Russia, the way they might begin to in Germany? And anticipating that, um, what, you know, what to make of it all, uh, you need maybe some way to to do something to reassure the worker and Theodore Roosevelt thought trust busting was that thing. That is, break up the big capitalist caricatures, the big companies, to show we are also on the side of the average man, even the one who might potentially strike. So you imagine TR in that mode. Um, there were bitter, bitter strikes in the time of his presidency, and he legitimized them by bringing the workers' representative, labor, to the table with business, and that was kind of new, um, kind of new and perceived as kind of obnoxious by people who didn't really believe that labor's representatives necessarily represented the individual worker. But there was, that's what, what TR did. The Republican Party was at that time the progressive party. That gave labor enormous power. It was beginning to meet with presidents. Um, and uh, that was his way of handling the radicalization of the worker. 
Well, you know, and there's a quote that is ascribed to Roosevelt. It may indeed not be. It's in, you know, when you go to Google and you search for quotes, this comes up. And it may or may not be what he literally said, but my goodness, it was in the air. And the quote was, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. Talk about that, because I think that summarizes a mindset of a specific group of leaders, thought leaders at the time. Well, we all know TR, that's what makes him fun, get action. Yep. He liked movement. He wasn't a bore. He wasn't a snore, right? And he was the one who called the presidency a bully pulpit, by which he meant a great pulpit, a great place to hold forth from as a god might uh, bully didn't mean the pers- what someone does to your child. It, it meant great. Uh, and his story of a weak child who grew up to be a strong man through boxing, overcoming tragedy, hardening himself out west. This was a wonderful story for Americans. San Juan Hill and so on. You bet. So, so uh, they liked him. They liked an aggressive president. Um, and if you stop acting when you're an aggressive figure, you you, you seem very disappointing, right? Yeah. It, it, he, he presents as strong man. We better stay strong man. And by I the way, I think with Roosevelt, it, it truly went, cut to his character. It not only wasn't an act, it's who he was. And I think he, he himself would have thought uh, nothing less if he weren't acting. I think he was simply a man of action all of his life. But that doesn't necessarily make for the best uh, leader of the free world, let alone even a decent CEO. That's right. And he had no idea whether he was right or not about say, trust. It, there's another famous quote, you understand you're dealing with a five-year-old in regard to Theodore Roosevelt. Right. Uh, you know, be careful, comma, Theodore, because he was impulsive. Yeah. And uh, he kind of scared all the old Elihu root, all the men around him. There weren't so many ladies at that time. So there it is, Theodore Roosevelt, and he went after the trust, even though he wasn't really sure what a trust was always. Right. And the thing one thinks of here is 1907. Um, let's go after the railroads. They're so strong and mighty, and uh, you know the general culture was also inspired by Louis Brandeis, the jurist. Who, who wrote a book, or what we later what later became a book called The Curse of Bigness, that size itself was evil. Right. So Roosevelt's doing this, um, and the, the hypothesis here is that uh, roles, um, excuse me, that railroads are invincible. The only way to bring them down is to bust them down. Well, that didn't turn out to be true. Roosevelt's promptly collapsed the 1907 panic, uh, and... Roosevelt, et cetera, had to go to the very people whom they'd assailed to rescue the railroads, J.P. Morgan and so on. Interesting, right? Uh, it, you know, trust busting is a fallacy. May, usually when you hate something that bad, it's more fragile than you know. Oh, indeed. I mean, Already. think about it, Amity. Every time oil prices skyrocket, the heads of the major oil companies are brought before Congress, whipped, beaten, and pilloried, um, and then, you know, four years later, the price collapses. These companies are shedding workers. They're collapsing. There are bankruptcies all over the oil patch. And you don't hear a peep. So we go from world dominance of these three energy companies to, oh, my goodness, they're going out of business. Right, right. And But it was the culture. It wasn't just TR. It was also Taft who came after him. Yep. And uh, very interesting, right? 
uh, let's get them, let's get them. Oh, let's get them to rescue us. Oh, let's get them. Um, there's some beautiful books about this period, which I, which I commend. But anyway, uh, that's going on. And someone like Calvin Coolidge, who happens to be a junior Massachusetts politician in the same party, observes Theodore Roosevelt first as a Republican and then with his own party, Bull Moose, and says, I'd rather be a traditional Republican. Yep, yep, a traditional Republican. I'd, I'd rather restrain. This I don't like this Theodore Roosevelt stuff. Coolidge was so civil that he never said a mean word about TR, and there's some good speeches that that uh, Coolidge gave about TR later. But he did say, uh, I believe in correspondence rather quietly, that he didn't think Louis Brandeis, the, the philosopher, the, the jurist, was safe. Right. That's Coolidge understatement. Yeah, a total understatement and totally within the character of the man, just as Roosevelt acted like Roosevelt, Coolidge, well, he acted like Coolidge. Let's talk about another man, Herbert Hoover. What was he like? What did he do before his time in government? And, well, let's talk about perception versus reality, too. And, Amity, we can get to a little bit of this now. And then on the, on the other side, we'll continue with your thoughts on Herbert Hoover. we got about two minutes right here. Talk about him. We'll start with physical posture. Think about Theodore Roosevelt, the way he stood, with sort of stomach out, head yep. tall, the way he leaned into the crowd when he spoke, the way he kept talking after he was shot during one speech. He's like a boxer. He was like a He's boxer. He's like a boxer from Sagamore Hill, and he was yep. kind of lovable and, and admirable, yep. right? And, and uh, um, Theodore Roosevelt was a big figure in Herbert Hoover's life. And when Hoover came along and ran, you know, would would think of himself politically, I'm sure he thought about T.R. The story of Hoover is he had a lot to be proud of and to stand tall over as well. He was the best paid and most skilled young man in his generation in the most lucrative field. So he was like the Sergey Brin or the Bill Gates of his field, which happened to be mining at a time when the world was on a gold standard, which meant when you found gold, you found more than money. You found ore money, right? So uh, Hoover went to Stanford. He was in the pioneer class. He was the top engineer from that class. He studied at the feet uh, and in the mines with the 1848 miners. He knew more than any English miner, any Russian miner, any Australian miner, and so he became the most successful miner in the year, the, the world that is mining engineer. And, um, well, he was quickly an investment banker, too, and a consultant, too, and not just someone hired to run a mine, say, in Australia. Right. Uh, he did this from London. Then, okay, World War One came along, and in World War One. What did he do? He decided he was going to rescue the Belgians. Well, hold that uh, thought, Amity. Hold it right after World War I. When we come back on the other side, more about this man, Herbert Hoover, you, who you may have an opinion about from a history class in college or high school, but you're going to hear the other side of the story as we talk about the Great Depression in this series on the Great Depression with the great writer Amity Schles. Her book, The Forgotten Man, may be the best work on the Great Depression out there. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our series on the Great Depression and the New Deal with author and Professor Amity Schles. She chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation and has written four New York Times bestsellers, including a great history of the Great Depression, The Forgotten Man. We were talking when we last left off about Herbert Hoover and World War I. And Amity, this is when he goes from being one of the greatest, if not the greatest, mind on minds to entering into the public square and being a public official. Talk about this transition from the private sector and science to, well, political science. Well, part of it has to do with vanity and one's view of oneself. If you're used to being... Hoover was the equivalent of a McKinsey consultant. That Today, that's what he would be. That is definitely the smartest guy in the room. And he'd reached the high point of a career in mining, investment banking, related to the mining sector and so on. He said, now I want to do something for people. He's also a man of great goodwill, a Quaker. And he says, look, those starving people over there in Belgium, this terrible war, I'm going, the Germans are going to let them starve. I'm going to feed them. That was his first big venture, and it was controversial because food is fungible, money is fungible, material is fungible. In a war, if you feed a people, you relieve the Germans, the occupiers, of the responsibility to feed that people. And that is what Hoover did. Um, it's just like Doctors Without Borders today. It sounds great, but sometimes they get in the way of someone's military project, which might in the end be more humane. Anyway, um, Hoover did that, and he did it writ large in a way that irritated some people, Winston Churchill, um, but definitely saved lives, definitely made uh, placed the Belgians in his debt forever. If you go out to the Hoover Institution, you go to the museum, you'll see the way the women embroidered the grain sacks. He sent the food in, in gratitude. Um, Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Hoover, and your very successful, very organized effort to feed our starving nation under this brutal occupier. Okay, that's one thing. And then he segues into another job, just like that American food administrator. After a war, food is all messed up. Um, Maybe we have to share some with other people, the people we're feeding overseas, certainly with troops. That's the main thing. And uh, Hoover became food administrator, but that's not a very free market position right there, right? Let's reallocate the world's food resources from the office of a very intelligent man. (laughs) Oh, I thought the market, wait, wait, what about the invisible hand? So so Herbert Hoover was the, a very evident hand of a progressive culture, that of Woodrow Wilson, in the food administrator job. And that put a lot of people off. Oh, don't eat butter. That has to go to the troops. Don't. Right. Uh, uh, Okay, maybe for a war, but still, um, again, a job where you're the most important person in the world. That's the thing to which to which Hoover gravitated. And he wasn't sure if he was going to be a Republican or a Democrat. I think he was going to be choose that party that would bring him victory when he decided to go in politics. So pragmatic in the end is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. And businessmen often are aren't they? They're not so political as to say, I'll only be in this party. Right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing either. I mean, if if what we're trying to do is solve problems, but the question becomes, do the leaders solve problems or do the markets solve problems? And this is the central question, isn't it, Amity? Yes, it is. And in our children's history books, our own history books, 
you learn, well, they intervened and that was good. It's not so clear that was good, whether it was in 1907 with the trust busting or it, in the intervention in the economy during World War One. We inflated a bit. That's why prices went up 40 or 50 percent subsequent to the war. And those on fixed incomes or fixed salaries, government officials didn't have enough money and went on strike because our government spent a lot on the war and was very high-handed, very heavy-handed as well in World War One. Hoover wanted to export American know-how and others that he knew, well, they wanted to import from overseas. Talk about Hoover as he saw America in relation to the rest of the world. Also, Amity, here, talk a little bit about Hoover that the world now knows and the real Hoover as he ended up going into higher uh, government office. Well, maybe I'll start with that. People think of Hoover as a big free marketeer, right? The free marketeer, the cold man who caused the Great Depression by what? by refraining from acting, and it, it couldn't be farther from the truth. That's right. a real misapprehension. Uh, Hoover liked action. He didn't believe in laissez-faire. He mocks laissez-faire as a fetish. He uses, uses that word fetish. I think he spells it funny. Anyway, fetish in his, in his political manifesto that he produced in the early 20s when he'd be contemplating running for presidential office. Um, and as president, when the Great Depression came, he was elected in 28. In 1929, he became president. His luck, the Depression came. He was action man. He was far more active and closer to TR, I think one could say, than to Coolidge, his predecessor. Um, he, First of all, he berated business, um, blamed speculators. Um, he, ne- you know, for, he believed prices should be moved around by men, n- not the market. And he blamed speculators for moving the prices the wrong way, or something like that. Um, and he raised taxes rather dramatically, undoing the wonderful low tax rate of the Coolidge administration, top marginal rate, twenty-five percent. Hoover first uh, did a stimulus, went down to 24 for a little bit, but that was temporary stim- stimulus, not a serious tax change. And then he cranked the taxes up to over, I believe, over 50 into the 60s. Wow, that's a reversal of a free market um, of a free market rule that in a downturn you raise taxes. And he, um, let's see, he increased the price of labor by exhorting employers to keep wages up. Usually in a downturn, you want to be able to be flexible with wages because you'd rather keep the people, right? Instead, he ordered pe- uh, employers to keep wages up. Well, when they're exhorted by the president, they obey. But what, of course, do they also do, Lee? They lay a few people off. You bet. You bet. And there's always it- that push and shove. And, and ultimately, you, you impose higher prices on business during downturn. And there will be a price, and that price will be the number of people actually working. Yes. And and so Hoover, the, the opinion of Hoover is, in general consensus, that he was just a sort of yawn, oh, the economy will take care of itself. And, Amity, it's almost the complete opposite. Who's in charge of making those decisions? How do we get to that point where Hoover is this sort of asleep at the wheel, yawning a plutocrat who doesn't care about the average guy and does nothing? I'm trying to think. How do you get over it? No, how do you get to that? How do we get to that point, Amity, where people think that way about Hoover? Uh, well, that's the common perception, that he didn't try. He didn't do anything. He wasn't a man of action. Uh, well, that's... History, history is theater. Yep. And, and it's also like watching sports. Perhaps that's a better metaphor. So we have um, the 
up guys whom we like. Uh, we like the athletes as a president, Franklin Roosevelt. So who do we not like? In order to make the one you like look good, you have to make someone else look bad. If anyone's ever seen a Mary Poppins, and you remember the scene in the bank mm-hmm. where uh, they talk about tuppence, that would be Coolidge. <laughs> that would be Coolidge. But when we come back, we're going to dig straight up through Hoover and talk a little bit more about the Depression. Also, what's in the air as we get to the New Deal And we're going to talk a little about Russia. We're going to talk a little bit about Mussolini. The right played with progressivism, too, in its own way. And that was leaning towards Mussolini and was happening in Italy with a strong man. And the left, of course, was infatuated with what was going on in Russia. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're being joined for the hour by Amity Schles. And Amity is the chair of the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, and she's written four New York Times bestsellers, including one that we're semi-covering today, and not in depth. By the way, we'll do this in later, later segments. But one of the terrific books of the last decade, The Forgotten Man, is in Amity Schley's work. Go on Amazon. Pick it up. When we come back, more on the Great Depression. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with Amity Schley's. We want to talk about what was in the air at the time, because progressivism was ruling the day, but not just on the left, on the right, too. The right-wingers were playing with the idea of following the strongman over in Italy, Mussolini. They were fascinated some. And on the left, boy, they were really interested in what was going on in Russia. Stuart Chase had this to say, Russia, I am convinced will solve for all practical purposes the economic problem. Excited by central planning, he added, why should Russians have all the fun remaking a world? Amity, talk about these two uh, points in the axis far away from each other. The right-wingers' infatuation with Mussolini and the left with the things that are going on in Moscow. Well, let's spend a while on the right and Mussolini. Yeah, because that's important. The right really liked Mussolini. You can see uh, Henry Luce of Fortune and Time giving attention to Mussolini and less to, say, Calvin Coolidge of the late, because they thought, well, maybe this is the model for Europe. The trains run on time under Mussolini. We've all heard that cliche. But more than that, uh, he was a powerful man, a forceful man, a man uh, who seemed modern and energetic, not lazy, and he inspired others. Mussolini. Nobody can know until later how much of a dictator he would be. Um, so we want to give them the benefit of history and not not judge um, even more harshly than we already do. Right. But and um, what were the features 
uh, of Mussolini's plans that intrigued people. Well, one was he believed in the economy, bigger is better, the economy of scale. There was enormous infatu- infatuation generally with the idea of the economy of scale. Another was his emphasis upon technology, not only trains that run on time, but trains that are good trains. Well, maybe it takes a big thinker to run a network. There was none of the idea today that we have today, which is a network might evolve organically. I mean, the, the, the a concept such as the Internet, which grew up almost by accident, serendipitously, was not a concept for them. It had to come from the mind of a big man with political chutzpah, right. force, you know, uh, and they just didn't think things just grew up. So if we're going to be modern, we need a figure like Mussolini, especially in a chaotic, otherworldly place like Italy, Pius, right? Well, is piety modern? We're not sure. Uh, so, so all these things were, were going on, and the U.S. was infatuated with Mussolini, both left and right, but perhaps much more astoundingly right. Yep, and on the left, uh, this uh, infatuation, as I read, Stuart Chase, one of these great minds of the time, and this is bankers, economists, the people who ended up comprising FDR's brain trust. And by the way, Amity, what's interesting now is no one knows how things are going to happen. We had David McCulloch on, and he just said, you know, no one, not, nothing had to happen the way it happened. That's, that's how he started off our talk about history. Nothing had to happen the way it happened. And by the way, the guys then didn't know what was going to happen. So everybody's looking at all of these various theories and thinking, which one is going to emerge triumphal? It's a crossroads for the world in economic history. So talk about that infatuation with things Russian, and then talk about how that influenced the New Deal and FDR's brain trust. Yes, well, from the point of view of an economist, perhaps Russia and Italy were not so different, if you're thinking economically, in the way they thought. Oh, well, how many time zones are there in the new Soviet Union? Economy of scale. They can do things better than we can because they can do them bigger. Think of how we think of China today, and there's a certain kind of personality that's infatuated with the size of China, what Martin Wolf has called a sizist, right? Bigger is better. Mm -hmm. That was the feeling about Russia, and why not? If you could capture that market, well, it was a rather significant market. If you could capture Europe, if Europe, Europe standardized following Mussolini's lead, well, that would be a big market, too. Maybe we could have the euro one day. Some of these ideas were not foreign, I don't know if they called it the euro, but the point being, we're not so foreign to, to ideas we envision right. today as, as perhaps beneficial to growth in, ec- in, in an economy. So there they all were. They didn't know how bad it was in Russia. They didn't want to know. Uh, and some of the same people who, like Mussolini, were interested in Lenin and in Stalin. Um, Stuart Chase, I think he was sort of um, a nicer fellow than some of the economists, but like some of the popular economists today, he came um, from an accounting background. He loved the economy of scale. He was infatuated with it. And he said, these men in Russia, this is in Forgotten Man, I write about this, they salt down an economy like a, a fishmonger salts down a batch of fish. In an afternoon, the Russian leadership will just allocate the whole economy of Russia at a table after a few cigarettes. Wow, are they amazing what they dare to do. Um, so uh, the U.S. went over and looked at Russia 
um, U.S. thinkers, not too many, because we didn't recognize Russia. Our government didn't recognize Russia in the 20s, um, but a few of them. And in The Forgotten Man, I describe uh, an, uh, a meaningful trip around 1927 when a few junior U.S. economists and junior labor people went over to Russia and said, wow, this is amazing, and they all wrote stories about it. This is amazing. We're the Sherpas. We're seeing what is our own future, as in Lincoln Steffens. I have seen the future, and it works, and maybe we can import some of that or replicate it in the United States. Now, we know now what was going on. We know now about the Ukrainian famine, but it's possible to, um, again, to say, well, maybe they didn't know all the way then. They were certainly given a Potemkin village, a, a prettified Russia to look at on this particular trip in 1927, which is a few chapters in in The Forgotten Man. How did these people and these ideas and this trip go on to influence FDR, Amity? I just want to back up and say one thing. Sure. Um the people who were not blinkered about it, who understood what was awful in Russia and even in under Mussolini, were people of faith. Because Stalin knocked down, paved over churches. Yep. Lenin, the same. And they were demonstrating right down Fifth Avenue the whole time. And, yeah, and we, people, of faith, people of faith are seeing it from a very different vantage point, not economics. But they know that there's a spiritual battle going on. And when you knock down the cross, uh, well, this is going to get Christians antsy. And they're almost harbingers, don't you think, in, in a sense, Amity? They know. I think they often are. When, yeah. you're not in the, you know, when you think of um, the Christians of the Middle East, yep. they, they know what's going on. This isn't humane because a man's faith is part of his soul. Yeah. And God meant, for us to be, God meant for us to be free. And God meant for us to be free. Oh, I don't mean to say it so so dogmatically, but many of us believe that. So, yes. so it's it's it is a litmus test, or you know, the canary in the mind. When when a regime won't tolerate faith, it won't tolerate a lot of other things. I think you could say that. Yep. So so, whoa, they're looking at the churches, and that is why the U.S. did not recognize the Soviet Union. The the big stumbling block for Franklin Roosevelt, he did recognize the Soviet Union was the church. And he actually asked his Soviet interlocutor, you know, you're, you know, when your parents die, you're going to pray for them, aren't you? I mean, what, what do you, why do you, why don't you care about the church in your country? Why isn't it important? But eventually, Franklin Roosevelt was willing to overlook the abuse of faith in the Soviet Union in the name of recognition for economics. He saw trade with Russia. He thought that would help us in the Great Depression, so he was going to overlook whatever happened uh, to the church. And do you think on some, in some respects he was thinking what some people here think, trade with China will help the Chinese be free, or trade with Iran will help Iran be free, or trade with Cuba will help Cuba be free? I mean, are there yeah, well-intentioned people who think this? Sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's true. It's, it's so true. It, these are hard calls. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, well, maybe economics is the way, you know. Uh, so so it, it's a very, very uh, tough call. But anyway, um, that was part of the story. And to, to sum things up on the, on the progressive impulse as we head into the New Deal, I mean, in the end, Amity, I think the, the best and the brightest, as we learn, um, 
ultimately get wrapped up in their own ability to think they can solve these problems. To what degree is hubris just a part of this story on any side of the political aisle? What part of, of just human nature has to do with a lot of this history writing? Human nature has to do with it all. And that's why history is so chancy, as David McCullough was saying, quoting another historian, probably. So it, it, Roosevelt could have not enjoyed Maxime Litvinoff and said, I, I'm not going to recognize them. There could have been no Great Depression, and we could have not trucked with Russia, right? Had trucked with Russia and, and recognized um, it, there could have been, the, the Mensheviks could have won in Russia. Right. They just happened not to. And Kerensky came here. So so all these 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 momentous turns happen, and often character has as much to do with it as, um, I don't know, economic facts. Yeah, and in fact, character may, may in, in the end, determine them. I, I remember, you know, one of my favorite books is 1776, and I think it becomes pretty clear that the character of a few men helped shape the country, Amity. I mean, I don't know if there's a country without the character of, you know, a couple of dozen guys. That's right, and, you know, how much they're bullies matters a lot. What I like about Coolidge is uh, his character, that he he held back. He held back the whole progressive flood for a good decade. Yeah, and you're right about Washington because he held back. Uh, he went back home. Uh, they wanted him to continue to rule, and he said, look, it's your country now. I'm going home. I'm going back to farming. I'm going back to my life in Mount Vernon. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've spent the hour with Amity Schles, an overview of the Great Depression, and we're going to continue this series in the coming months in more detail. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Catch this and our last discussion on the Great Depression. Thanks so much for everything you do, Amity. Thank you. You bet.